Father, this morning I uh, pray just a a very simple prayer, Lord. I, I ask, God, that you, by your word, through the preaching of your word, through us examining your character, God, I pray that you would teach us this morning about your heart for the oppressed. And God, I pray as a result of studying the Bible together this morning, and again, examining your character, God, I pray that, that Lord, you would bring about unity, humility, and Christ-like love as we read these scriptures. We pray, God, that by your spirit, you would accomplish that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So several years ago, uh, when Grace Hill Church was just getting started, we started a sermon series that we call This Cultural Moment. And this is a sermon series that is kind of perpetually going on. And what we do is every once in a while, we just press pause on whatever we're preaching on. And if our world, if our culture, if our society is talking about something, wrestling with something and the word of God clearly speaks to it, then, then we press pause and we do a, a, an installment of this series to address what our culture is talking about, to see what God's word has to say to us about it. Now, I, I don't need to give an introduction about the conversation that is happening uh, in our world today in the, in the middle of 2020. Uh, Recent tragic events, including the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, uh, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, have appropriately erupted on on a global scale, it seems like, uh, anger, frustration uh, at systemic racial uh, oppression uh, in our country. Now, I, I use that phrase very intentionally, systemic racial oppression because as I talk to uh, people and uh, as they're grieving, as they're grappling with uh, these events that have occurred and the conversation that's happening in our country, I I think the two emotions that I hear the most often is exhaustion and cynicism. Uh, And both of these emotions are rooted in the demoralizing realization that there seems to be a system of oppression installed into our society. And although there's a lot of talk going on right now, and there is a lot of protests, and there's a lot of social media campaigns and political rhetoric, and all of that, there doesn't seem to be any sort of indication that the system of oppression is being dismantled or appropriately challenged. And and so that right there is exhausting. Because even though the rhetoric is high right now, even though this seems to dominate the conversation, things, honestly, let's be honest, will probably calm down in a few weeks. We'll go back to normal life. The system will still be installed into the society. And that system impacts and oppresses people every single day. And then what will happen is there will be a point where someone will film the system doing that again. 
and then we'll all see it, and then the conversation will restart for a little bit. And so what we realize is that the system is resilient. And many of us, this is, this is something right here that needs to be a part of the conversation, and that this is part that might, might poke us a little bit. That's okay, because I think the conversation that we need to have is this, that, that it's possible whether intentionally or not intentionally, it's possible that, that many of us are protecting the system without even knowing it. And so this morning, here's, here's what I would like to do. I, I want to talk about how Christians and how the church should identify and fight systemic oppression. Now, if you're interested in learning more, about what systemic racial oppression is and how I believe historically the church is culpable in, in helping to install that system into our society. What I want to do is point you to another sermon that I preached. I preached this a couple of years ago. Now, it's This Cultural Moment Part 2. Uh, the title of that sermon is Race in America. And uh, that's on our website. That's on our podcast if you want to go listen to that. But in that sermon... Uh, we go through the history of the church and systemic racial oppression in America. And I really encourage you to listen to that sermon if you're skeptical that this even exists. If you're even wondering uh, if systemic racial oppression exists, I really want to point you to that sermon. Because what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to continue under the premise that racial oppression does exist and that it is systemic meaning it's embedded into our way of life and into our society, and that the church has a huge part. Actually, I believe should be taking the lead part when it comes to confronting those evil systems. And so this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at three stories uh, in the Bible. And in these three stories in Scripture, we're going to see where evil systems of oppression were confronted by God himself. And from these stories, we are going to discover four steps to fight systemic oppression. Now, let me just kind of warn you right now. Uh, we've got a lot to say this morning, a lot to dig into that I think it's important. We have this conversation all together right now. So this might be a little longer than what you're used to. Uh, but I hope you'll get your Bible open uh, and dig in with me this morning. Let's talk about this uh, together. And if you are a note taker um, and you're struggling to get all the notes down, uh, I always post my sermon notes online after the fact. And so uh, you'll be able to find those on our website uh, probably tomorrow morning um, as well. You can get those. All right. So let's start. We're going to get into the scripture. Genesis chapter 12 is where we're going to start. And I'm going to read verses 10 to 20. This will be our first story. Now, let me give you a little bit of context before uh, I read here. Um, so in Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10, uh, here, here's where we are. We, we're, we're, Ab we're with Abram and his wife uh, Sarai. Now, now, you might know them as Abraham and Sarah. Their names were changed a couple of chapters later. But in Genesis 12, they're named Abram and Sarai. And what's going on is they are now in the middle of traveling to the promised land. Uh, God came to Abram in Genesis 12 and says, I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And this will be the land that God would lead the Israelites to later in the Old Testament. 
And Abram himself is uh, going to be the father of the nation of Israel. God promises that Abram will have this huge offspring that will bless the whole world. And so what's going on in Genesis 12 is Abram and Sarai, his wife, are, are headed towards the promised land. They're journeying uh, there. But let's pick up the story in verse 10. Genesis 12, verse 10. Here's what it says. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram took a detour, went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live." Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants, female donkeys and camels. They were given to Abram as a gift. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, she's my sister, so that I took her as my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now, when, when most people read this story, and, and actually most commentaries say this as well, what they tend to do is zoom in on Abram's sin. They talk about how this story is an example of Abram's lack of faith in God. They, they talk about how Abram should have trusted God as he was traveling to the land that God was going to show him, even in the midst of a famine and not detoured to Egypt. That's speculative because the text doesn't indicate that for us, that that was out of lack of faith. Uh, they talk about how Abram deceived Pharaoh, lied to Pharaoh about Sarai being his sister. Now, that's kind of a half-truth because Sarai was actually Abram's half-sister, but it was still a lie nonetheless. They were married, and so it was deceitful. And so we look at this text, and the application that we pull from it is that Abram sinned and should have trusted God. But here's the question that that interpretation and that application doesn't actually address. Why does God punish Pharaoh? Why is God's judgment directed toward Pharaoh and not Abram? And the answer, and I have to give credit to one of my seminary professors, Dr. Carl Ellis Jr., for helping me see this, the answer is Psalm 9-9. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. God punished Pharaoh and not Abram, because Pharaoh was perpetuating a system of oppression that forced Abram's hand. Uh, Dr. Carl Ellis Jr., my, one of my professors, uh, defines oppression this way. Uh, he says this, oppression 
is being forced into having nothing but bad options. All right, all right, look at the story with me. Abram, in a desire to protect his family, to care for and provide for his family, takes them to Egypt in the midst of a famine for food. And Abram knew that as a foreigner, if he just caravaned into Egypt, Egyptian officials were going to take notice and pull the caravan aside. And he knew that they would see Sarai, his wife, and take her away into Pharaoh's house. And so here are Abram's options. We say she's my wife and I lose my life. We say she's my sister and, then, or I, and I get paid. Either way, Sarai is going to be abducted by Pharaoh. And, and so Abram, desperate to feed his family, has to travel to an oppressive place, the only place to find food, where he's going to have to figure out what he's going to do when he gets pulled over. Pharaoh presided over a system that gave people starved for food like Abram nothing but bad options. That's oppression. Did Abram sin? Did he have a lack of faith? Maybe. Could, could Abram be critiqued here? Potentially, possibly. But God's attention, God's judgment was directed upon the system of oppression that Pharaoh had established. It wasn't directed towards Abram. One more story. Uh, Genesis 38. So we got Genesis 12. Let's jump to Genesis 38. This is the story of Judah and uh, Tamar. Now, let me give a quick parental warning here. Genesis 38 does contain some explicit uh, content. If you've read it before, you are familiar with what I'm talking about. And so just want to give you that fair warning. But let me paraphrase a part of this chapter for us because I don't have time to read the entire thing. But let me kind of get the story started for us and then we'll read the end of it um, together. So Judah... All right, is one of the sons of Jacob. So remember Abraham, who we just talked about, Isaac was his son, then Jacob, then Jacob had 12 sons. All right, those were the different tribes of Israel as well, and Judah was one of those sons. And Judah happened to be the tribe that Jesus was born into. Now, Judah married a Canaanite woman and had three sons with this woman, uh, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. All right, so he has three sons. Now, Judah arranges a marriage between his oldest son, Ur, and this woman named Tamar. But the text tells us that Ur was a wicked man and God killed him. So, Ur is now dead. And so, uh, Tamar is now uh, a woman, I mean, uh, a, a widow. And you have to understand that in this culture and during this time, being a widow was a really scary thing. If you had no one to take care of you as a woman and as a widow in this culture, the way it ran, the way the economics were and everything, if you were a widow and you had no one to take care of you, you were almost guaranteed a life of oppression and abuse and poverty. Now, God hates oppression. He hates it. This is why in the law of the Old Testament, God commanded his people to practice something called leveret marriage. And you can read about this in Deuteronomy 25. But in leveret marriage, if a woman's husband dies, the brother of the man who died must marry the widow. 
And the purpose of this was to protect the widow, make sure she was provided for, and also to carry on the name of her husband who had died. So it would have been expected here that Judah's next son, Onan, would now marry Tamar because of Leverat marriage. And that's what happened. He did marry Tamar. But he was wicked as well. And Onan refused to have a child with Tamar, all right, which he was supposed to do to carry on the name of his brother, but also to ensure Tamar's continued safety through having children and having family to take care of her. Onan refused to do that, so God killed him. So now Tamar is a widow again. So it would be expected here then for Judah's next son, Shelah, to marry Tamar. But Judah did not allow this to happen. He did not let Shelah marry Tamar. And this puts Tamar in a difficult position. Now she has nothing but bad options before her in order to take care of herself. So let's pick up the story right there. I'm going I'm to start in verse 12. Genesis 38, verse 12. Let's see what Tamar does. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, What pledge shall I give you? And she replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Essentially what Tamar just did is she said, Hey, what you need to give me to ensure that I'll get payment is basically your driver's license. I need your identification. Give that to me as collateral, and then when the young goat uh, comes, I will give the driver's license the identification back. That's what that signet was like. And he said, uh, so, so he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Verse 20, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adolamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you didn't find her. Verse 24, and three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. 
And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. Now, this is obviously not a story that provides good sexual ethics to us in the Bible. Uh, We could examine this story and we could obviously criticize Judah for his sexual ethics and for his hypocrisy. We could criticize Tamar that that she didn't trust God uh, when she couldn't marry Shelah. She took matters into her own hands. She prostituted herself. She deceived Judah. She lied to him. How could that be commendable? But what we see in the text is that God is more concerned in dismantling the system of oppression that got Tamar caught in, in Judah's household. And the story ends with the shame of Judah and the righteousness of Tamar. Tamar had nothing but bad options in this moment, and God's attention, God's judgment, was directed upon the system of oppression, Judah, that forced Tamar's hand. See, when we look at both of these stories, in in order to understand God's actions and his heart in these stories, we have to allow for some nuance. It's very easy to approach these stories using binary thinking, okay? Binary thinking. Let me define this to you, for you. Binary thinking is defined as putting things in terms of two options that are usually mutually exclusive, and we love to use binary thinking when we're talking about like moral issues, right? So, so let me give you an example of binary thinking that I fall into often, right? It's this. If you root for the Philadelphia Eagles, then you're a terrible person, right? Well, what, what I've done is I've taken two categories, a great person and not a great person. I've used binary thinking to move someone into one of those categories by applying a very simple test to it. No nuance allowed. If you root for the Eagles, you're a terrible person. It's a struggle for me. How about a more serious example? If you don't vote for Donald Trump in 2020, then you are not pro-life. We've applied a simple test. We've created two categories. We've moved someone completely into that category through that test. No nuance allowed. That's binary thinking. Now, If we're to apply binary thinking to these stories that we just read in the Bible, it would go something like this. Did Abram sin or did Abram not sin? Abram did not trust God. He lied to Pharaoh. Therefore, Abram sinned. Point of the passage, we must trust God even when it's hard. Now, That's not a bad application of the text, but our binary thinking has caused us to completely miss other layers of the text, specifically God's judgment against oppression. Did Tamar sin? Did Tamar not sin? Even though Tamar exposed the hypocrisy of Judah, we still need to trust God when it's hard. She still sinned sexually. She still lied. That too might not be a bad application of the text, but again, our binary thinking has caused us to miss a layer of the text that's really important, namely God's judgment against oppression. 
See, binary thinking, this is so important, silences the oppressed. And so this morning, I said I wanted to give all of us four steps to fight systemic oppression. And this is the first step. Step number one is this. We need to reject binary thinking. Reject binary thinking. Now, quick caveat. I'm not saying that we must reject all binary thinking. I'm not saying truth is relative. But when it comes to most anthropological and political issues, we should mostly reject binary thinking. And here's why. Because binary thinking is designed to take complex issues, oversimplify them by creating two distinct sides, and polarize the supporters of each side into two groups that have nothing in common. And this is so important. When we allow ourselves to get caught up in binary thinking, we actually enable oppressive systems to exist unnoticed. Oppression thrives in the nuance of issues that binary thinking keeps in the dark. Right, just think about that for a second. Oppression thrives in the nuance of issues that binary thinking keeps in the dark. Oppression thrives because binary thinking shuts down conversation. So let me give you some examples. The phrase, the rally cry, Black Lives Matter. Now, I'm talking about the phrase. I'm not talking about the political organization. The phrase is a cry for justice toward the systemic oppression that blacks have experienced in this country. The phrase is not Black Lives Matter more. That's not the phrase. But many people respond to the phrase with all lives matter. Now, that's a true statement. No one disagrees with that. But the statement is designed to be a comeback using binary thinking. That's what it's designed. This is what the comeback is. Those who say black lives matter are the racist ones because they care only about black lives and the ones who say all lives matters are not the racist ones. That's why the comeback is designed to communicate, right? Let's be honest. And it oversimplifies the issue to the point where the cries and the stories of injustice and oppression are kept in the dark. We're so caught in the binary thinking of the two sides that we can't even have any nuance to have a discussion. And so oppression stays in the dark. All right, what about church ministry philosophy? There are many evangelicals who would say that churches should not concern themselves with things like social justice and racial reconciliation and fighting oppression because these things distract from the gospel. That churches should only concern themselves with preaching the gospel and not doing the work of justice. This is binary thinking. The faithful churches, right, here's the binary thinking, are the ones who only preach the gospel. And if you're a church that does anything else in addition to that, you are an unfaithful church that now has been influenced by godless ideologies, is what they say. And they'll, they'll throw terms at you and they'll say things like this, like, you know, it's critical race theory, it's intersectionality that are informing the church in these areas. But all that's happening is they're distracting from the real issue where they now have an excuse not to 
do the humble, introspective work in their own hearts and in their own church buildings to see if they are perpetuating oppression as well. See, binary thinking is designed to soothe our conscience from the possibility that we might be involved in this. Capitalism. In our country and amongst most conservatives, to critique capitalism and point out where capitalism enables oppression will get you labeled a Marxist and a communist. There you go. Just slap a label on it. Binary thinking. You're either a full-blown capitalist, blind to its problems, or you're a full-blown Marxist. Those are the two options, and it doesn't work that way. And the oversimplification allows the oppression that capitalism enables to go unnoticed and unchallenged. Listen, I'm all for capitalism. I agree it's the best economic system, but there's no economic system without its problems. And our capitalist system needs to be scrutinized for the ways that it enables oppression, right? So I could go on and on. I know I'm getting a little passionate here, right? But, but we're, we're just so caught in binary thinking, right? Christians must vote Republican. Conservatives are racist. White privilege is a myth. All undocumented immigrants are criminals. Trump is the one to blame for COVID. Black people hate the police. The police hate black people. America is a Christian nation. America is a secular nation. What about the judges Trump puts on the bench? If you're a biblical, if you follow biblical sexual ethics, then you hate. LGBTQ people, uh, talking about race only divides people, right? It's just all binary thinking. It's all destructive. It exists on both sides of the political divide and it all allows oppressive systems to flourish. And so the first thing that we must do as the church and as people who love truth and stand for truth we have to reject that kind of thinking. It doesn't belong in the church. We have to have real conversations with people, truly understand the issues, not get caught up in all the hype. And let me tell you, if you begin to reject binary thinking on these issues, you will get labeled and you will get criticized. People in the church, people in your family, your friends, your neighbors, You'll get labeled all kinds of things because our society is drunk on binary thinking right now. We don't know how to think differently. We don't know how not to label people right now. And I do believe that binary thinking has not allowed our nation to have a true conversation about the black experience in America because we're just shoved to our sides, yelling at each other, accusing each other of who's wrong. And just like these two stories we read in the Bible, in the scriptures, what God cares about is the oppressed. Now, step one is we need to reject binary thinking. If we do that, we're ready to move to step two. Step number two is this. We need to scrutinize our normal. Is it possible... That, that once we free ourselves of the oversimplification of binary thinking and we begin to discover the nuance of all these issues, that we'll discover how our normal way of thinking and our normal way of living actually perpetuates oppressive systems. 
Um, when we think about the two stories that we read so far in Scripture, obviously Pharaoh's normal uh, way of life, Judah's normal way of life directly fueled oppressive systems, especially towards women, and it needed to be confronted. But allow me to read us a third story this morning that might provide uh, an example of how oppressive systems could even exist within the walls of the church. Um, Let's go to Luke chapter 13 together. Gospel of Luke, uh, third book in your New Testament, um, eyewitness account of uh, Jesus and his teachings and his ministry. So we're just going to read a story of Jesus in one of the synagogues uh, in his day. So Luke chapter 13, verses 10 to 17, let's, let's read this. It says this, Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath day. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years, She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then Jesus, the Lord, answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox and his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Looking at this text, Can we see how binary thinking allowed a system of oppression to go unnoticed? We have a woman who had been suffering for 18 years. And yet the laws of the Jews had expanded so much, gotten so strict, very political, and so removed from their original purpose and intent that people were literally appalled. Think about this. They were appalled, not amazed, When Jesus healed her. Indignant, not amazed, when Jesus healed her. So binary thinking, you either follow the law or you don't follow the law. It doesn't matter if there's a woman suffering. Right, so do you see how binary thinking even made it so that a woman was completely unnoticed? It was Jesus who saw her and acted on her behalf because God is always seeking to dismantle oppressive systems and the law had become an oppressive system. You see that? The law had become an oppressive system. And that's a major theme in the life and the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels. So now if these people in the synagogue would have freed their minds from the slavery of binary thinking, they would have been able to scrutinize their normal. They would have, been, they would have had the permission in their own minds to ask if the way they've been applying the law is the way God intended to or not. Right, so their eyes would have been open to scriptures like Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8, where it says this, With what shall I come before the Lord, 
and bow myself before God on high? What shall I bring with me? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's asking the question, God, what laws do you want me to follow? Uh, what sacrifices should I bring? How do I please you with my life? In verse 8, he says this. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. If that synagogue would have had the humility to scrutinize if their interpretation of the law was in line with the heart of God or not, their eyes would have been open to actually how their version of religion and their interpretation of the law perpetuated systems of oppression. And Jesus was there to point it out and to rebuke it. And we need to have the humility to scrutinize our normal as well. Our normal way of thinking and, and living. We should scrutinize our, our passionately held political views on both sides of the aisle and realize that binary thinking has protected us from admitting and truly seeing the underbelly of our political views. We should scrutinize our view of the church and what we hope to get out of the church and realize that consumer-driven, entertainment-driven church actually forces the church to segregate based on preference instead of unify based on our Savior. And when the church is segregated, we don't have the relationship with one another to understand each other and love each other and confront and challenge each other. That enables oppression. We should scrutinize our view of the black experience in America and listen instead of talk, validate instead of explain, allow our perspective to be scrutinized. We should scrutinize our theology. And I know some of you might want to talk more about this one, but listen, theology is always built through a cultural filter. God's word is transcultural. But theology, the interpretation of God's word, how we explain God's word, it always goes through a cultural filter. And that makes many white theologians nervous because we just want to believe that all of our theological writings are not influenced by culture. But they are, right? So, so why is it that many white theologians critique the black church as kind of this heretical liberation theology and overly emotional. Right? They're reading God's word from a different life experience. So just think about this for a second. Many of the Puritans that we just celebrate and laud and we read their writings, they have fantastic writings, many of them were slave owners. And so believe me, oppressors and the oppressed read their Bible differently and look at me, do church differently. And this skepticism of black theology and black scholars and black ecclesiology, I think, has perpetuated a subtle system of racial oppression in the church. I have never, I've never seen Genesis 12 in the way that I explained it to you today until one of my black seminary professors helped me to see it. We need to scrutinize our deep assumptions about people of color as well. 
and not allow our binary thinking to stop us or our pride to stop us. A few years ago, I uh, took my friends, uh, to, sorry, took my kids uh, to a playground here in Herndon. It was a playground that, you know, we had to drive to, so we parked the van, we walked up to the playground, played for about an hour, then it was time for us to leave, so I was getting the kids to go walk back up to the van, and, and as we were about to go, I, I noticed that up at the parking lot were a circle of about six men, like abnormally muscular men, standing next to my van. And I knew they were muscular because several of them had their shirts off. And they were standing in a circle and they were just talking and laughing right next to my van. Now, I immediately got nervous. These men weren't acting threatening in any sort of way. Strangers generally don't make me nervous. Why was I nervous? I, I get if you're, maybe you were a woman by yourself and there was a group of men standing next to your car, you know, with their shirts off. Like, you, you may maybe be a little nervous. I get that. But I remember realizing in that moment, I think I'm nervous because these men are black. I have never in my life ever had an uncomfortable encounter with a black man, ever in my life. So why would this make me nervous? There's an assumption and a learned assumption inside of me that needs to be scrutinized, questioned, acknowledged. Whoa, that's there. Why is that there? So, so I walked up to the van. I said hi to the guys, put my kids in the van. And then I noticed that one of the guys was pulling football pads out of his trunk. So I asked what they were doing, and I, I learned they're a semi-pro football team here based in the area. They were about to go down to the field to have a practice. So no wonder these guys are massive. I mean, these guys, I was looking straight up at them. And, and I sat out there with those guys for about 15 extra minutes, just talking football, excited. I had no idea what semi-pro football was, just asking them about it, laughing, cracking jokes. I'm really glad in that moment that I scrutinized my normal because those were some great guys. And there was something inside of me that I could have decided to give into. And that would have perpetuated, I believe, a system of oppression that says it's normal to be skeptical of blacks. Right? That wasn't just a moment of scrutiny for me. That was a moment of repentance. So, Let's avoid binary thinking. Let's scrutinize our normal. And when we're ready to do those things in our hearts and in our minds, we're in the perfect stop, spot for step number three. So step number three is this, be a student. Now it's time to be a student. This is the moment to start educating yourself because now we've eliminated the barriers in our hearts and in our heads that prevent this education. Right? Education will do no good if we're caught in binary thinking or we refuse to actually scrutinize our normal and see where we need to change. Like we could read books, we could listen to podcasts, we could even talk to our neighbors, but if we're not willing to do those first two steps, all that is going to go in one ear and out the other. So it's after we've taken the first two steps that I encourage you to go read uh, the post on Facebook from my brother Justin Winters on staff with us here at Grace Hill where he recounted his experience as a black man, watching his dad get arrested because he was driving too nice of a car, being told by investors that he would never get investment into his company, his successful company, because he's black, or having his daughter call him in tears, 
saying, Daddy, please don't go out. I, I'm just afraid for your life. I'm afraid for your safety as a black man. Right, that post, it's an education. But are we willing to hear it? Are we willing to validate it? To not brush it off as isolated or, or unfortunate thing that occurred. The best education you can get is simply through listening to your black brothers and sisters. Right? This is the moment now to, to, to grab books and, and begin to read. I, I've compiled a, a small list of books that I, I have found to be hugely helpful on this topic. If you go to gracehillchurch.com read, uh, you'll see a list of books there that I encourage you to read. Books like The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabella Wilkerson or, or The Myth of Equality by Ken Witzma, The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby, Divided by Faith, great book on that. Be the Bridge by Latasha Morrison. Get these books, begin to read, educate, become a student. We gotta educate ourselves and we must listen to the stories of our minority brothers and sisters so we can no longer be ignorant to the systems of oppression that actually do exist. All right, so, so now that we've taken these three steps, right, we're, we're rejecting binary thinking, we're scrutinizing our normal, we're, we're becoming a student, we are now in a place where we can clearly and humbly see the systems of oppression that exist around us, and we're ready for step number four. Step number four is this. We need to fight the battle knowing the war is won. In all three stories that we read this morning, not only do we see a, a theme of oppression, but we also see a theme of God bringing redemption and restoration and rescue. In Genesis 12, with Abram and Sarai, God promised to them that their offspring, would, 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 from it would come a Messiah who would bring about peace and redemption to all of the nations. And God kept his promise to Abram and Sarai through delivering them from oppression. In Genesis 38, Judah was one of those offsprings of Abram and the son that he had with Tamar would be in the direct line that Jesus would come from. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 1. God continued to keep his promise through delivering Tamar from oppression. In Luke 13, the Messiah himself, Jesus, takes notice of a woman who had been suffering for 18 years and he gives all of us a taste of what he's going to do on a cosmic scale as he delivered that woman from oppression. All three of these stories utilize the deliverance of the oppressed from their oppressors to remind us that God will keep his promise to make all things new. And that day at the synagogue, everyone was amazed when Jesus healed the woman. But they hadn't quite realized yet that it wasn't just this woman who needed to be set free. But they were the ones who needed to be delivered as well. They were the ones needing healing. They were the ones who needed to be rescued. And that day, after Jesus healed this woman in the synagogue. He would leave and continue his ministry and make his way down to Jerusalem, down the road of Calvary, with joy set before him. And what Jesus would do is he would willingly and he would lovingly offer his body to those who would oppress him and beat him 
spit upon him and strip him naked, mock him and lynch him for all to see. And as Jesus was having his breath snuffed out of him for a crime that he did not commit, God was accepting his suffering and his death of Jesus as a just payment for the sins of all people who would trust in him. Jesus went to the cross to deliver you and me from the oppression of sin. Fundamental to the mission of Jesus is the war against oppression. And at the cross, Jesus wins the war. And when Christ returns, he's going to set free all of his people from sin and oppression for eternity. And he's going to send to judgment all those who continue to perpetuate it without repentance. And fundamental to gospel ministry is the proclamation of what Christ did on the cross and the application of what Christ did on the cross through the active work of fighting oppression. That's what God did throughout the whole Bible. He is a God who fights oppression. That's what Jesus did in the Gospels. The church looks most like Jesus when the gospel is boldly proclaimed with our lips while the church is actively fighting oppression. And so to fight the battle against systemic oppression, it's a part of the mission of the church. If we proclaim the gospel with our lips, but we refuse to fight oppression in and around our community, this is so important, then we don't represent the God of the Bible. And we need to fight that battle knowing that the war has been won. That in the end, Jesus will end all oppression. He'll establish his kingdom. And so, if you're one of those people right now and you're, yes, I feel exhausted, cynical, tired, this is going to keep happening. We're going to keep following the hype and then Everything will go back to normal, and then another video will come out, and we'll go down this hype road again. And it's hard, if it's hard for you to take all of this seriously, you need to know this morning that the war is won. You will taste a kingdom where it's all been dealt with, where justice has been met, has been had. Where you won't have to walk around wondering if you'll encounter the system of oppression again. The war's won. But even though it's won, we have to engage in the battle today. And the gospel ought to embolden us to get into the battle. So how? How, how, how do we fight the, the battle against uh, oppression after we take those first three steps? And now this question has a lot of answers to it. I cannot give you an exhaustive answer right now, but let me just encourage all of us to engage the battle in three ways beyond the first steps that I've already outlined. So here's the first way we can fight this battle knowing the war is won is this. Know that as a follower of Christ, if oppression exists in your community, it is your problem. As a follower of Jesus, if oppression exists in your community, it is 
your problem. Our God moves towards the oppressed, and so does his people. So if, if you've been feeling like this whole topic, this whole conversation going on in the country just doesn't involve you, if you belong to God, if you're called by his name, if you're united to Jesus, if you're in his family, it involves you. Because God's family fights for the oppressed. That's what we do. God's family sees the suffering woman coming into the synagogue and moves towards her, doesn't ignore her. So work through the first three steps and get involved for the long run. Right? The church should be the leader in this battle. Second, this one I'm getting practical. We should, as Christians, refuse to vote for politicians at every level of government, from town council all the way on up to uh, president of the United States. We should refuse to vote for politicians who utilize binary thinking to generate support and attack their opponents. Christians are people who value truth. We value truth. And we should be the last people to get swept up into all the rhetoric and hype that's designed to distract you from the real issues at hand. Right? We should demand leaders in our country who are willing to engage in the nuance of all issues. Because remember, binary thinking enables oppression by allowing it to continue unnoticed. And, and I know you might be thinking, well, Alan, I don't know if those politicians exist out there. Well, they do, actually. They do exist. Nuance doesn't generate excitement like binary thinking does. And maybe if the church would just say, hey, enough is enough. We're not going to support candidates like that who, who get into this garbage. We might actually see some change in the area. And so let's not vote for candidates that perpetuate oppression through binary thinking. And listen, it exists on both sides. I'm not trying to push you towards one side or the other, but we should value truth. Lastly, number three is this, and most importantly, we need to all grow some gospel thick skin. Uh, if you trust in Jesus, he's redeemed you, right? I mean, you're not perfect yet. We all struggle with a lot of different things, and he promises to complete the work that he is doing in you. Right? If you trust in Jesus, you are a part of the family of God, and there's nothing that you could say or do that's going to get you kicked out of the family of God. And so this gospel thick skin allows you to do a few things with that, right? It allows us to confess our sin, admit when we're wrong, and to seek help, right? It, it allows us to be humble, right? If you begin to take the steps that I've outlined today already, you might discover areas of needed repentance in your life. We probably all would. That's okay. Like, repent. Trust in the cross. There is forgiveness for you. And listen, there is joy unspeakable when you begin to align your life with a God who fights for the oppressed. The other thing that gospel thick skin allows you to do is it allows you to confront someone else who might be perpetuating systemic oppression. In blatant ways, subtle ways, ignorant ways. But if we're going to engage in the battle, we cannot, listen, we cannot witness people perpetuating oppression and not do anything about it. And you might get labeled, right? You might get called a lot of things for sticking your neck out for the oppressed. Most people who stick their neck out for the oppressed generally get criticized. And you might get hurt. But the gospel reminds us that we belong to a God 
that even though we might suffer for the advancement of the gospel and for fighting for the oppressed, he's won the war. Right? I mean, this, was, this is how Paul lived his life. Philippians 1.21, where Paul would say, listen, to live is Christ, the ministry of Christ. Uh, uh, proclaiming, applying the gospel. That's my life, and to die is gain, right? The gospel enables us to get into the battle no matter the consequences because the war is won. And so, Grace Hill, what I want to do right now is just want to pray for us. I want to pray that God would allow us to be a church and us to be people who understand and take seriously God's heart for the oppressed. And people who'd be willing to say, I want to put my entire life on the line. I want to put everything on the table to do the ministry of the gospel, which is proclaiming it boldly with our lips without apology and applying it through fighting for the oppressed. That's my heart and my hope and desire for our church. So I'm going to pray for that, and then let's continue to sing together. God, this morning, I pray very simply um, that, God, you would unify us as a church. You would humble us as a church. And, Lord, you would give us the ability to be people who live for your kingdom and not the kingdoms of this world, who live with your ethics and with your heart not the ethics in the heart of a particular political party or movement. And God, what we see so clearly in Scripture is that you have a heart for the oppressed. You're always seeking to dismantle oppressive systems. And so God, may your church follow you in that, represent you in that. So God, show us as a church in Grace Hill how we can do that, Lord. Help us to be consistent in this. Help us to be long-suffering in this. Help us to take these steps that we've outlined today in humility. God, we pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We love you, God, and we ask all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.